And how many of you remember Brother Ray? A small handful. Well, several of you do. He was a very precious gentleman, and he first mentored me as a minister. And I would go over to his house years ago and sit down with him, and we would study the scriptures together. And when he put together a book for ministers, something a kind of a training mechanism, and there was a passage of scripture quoted from 2 Timothy. And that's what I'm going to use as a lead-in to where I'm going today. And um, it got down in my heart years ago that this is the way that ministers should handle the flock of God. And it, it's something that I have alluded to numerous times in my own personal working out my own salvation, in essence. When my, when my own emotions try to get out of the way, get in the way, or frustrations abound, it's this passage of Scripture. It's 2 Timothy 2 verses 24 through 26. And we're going to read it and then we're going to pray over the Word of God and we're going to kind of go forward. And Paul is writing to Timothy who is serving in a pastoral role and a leader over others. And if you've ever studied the, the books of First and Second Timothy, you know that Timothy, he had, got, he had issues at times that he had to deal with himself. He was intimidated at times in ministry. And Paul had to encourage him to say, Timothy, God's not giving you the spirit of fear. He was sick. I think sometimes handling people caused his stomach to be kind of messed up. And he didn't have Pepto-Bismol in those days. And so he said, Paul said, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Because in what that's saying to me, he was probably in dealing with pastoring people. He was just struggling emotionally inside. And Paul wrote to him how to handle God's people. And this has really gotten into my heart over the years. And I seek to have the Holy Spirit to work in my life on a regular basis. And if I were training pastors, I would, I would, I would direct them to this passage here. It says in the 24th verse, the servant of the Lord. It's behind me and in front of me. And it's also on the page. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach. How I many know there's the right way to handle God's people? Gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. We must not forget, church family, that we are in a spiritual war for the souls of men. Come on now principalities and powers, despotic evil spirits that have been cast out into the earth, wage war against Christ and the kingdom of Christ and over the souls of men. That's the spoils of this war. Come on, the lives of men and women. Jesus said the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We hold the answer. The answer is Christ. Come on, he is the propitiation, which means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we can have access to God only through him. Through Christ, we can enter boldly into the presence of God. Confidently, come on somebody. Knowing that we are accepted in him because of Jesus Christ. Believing that the God that began a good work in us is the God that will continue to work in us. The old song used to teach the children in children's churches, he's still working on me. Come on, somebody. He hadn't given up. Still changing you and shaping you and forming you into the image of his son. So today, 
as a pastor, I'm going to take you on a journey. Some of you are not going to see where I'm going just yet because it looks like we're going this way and then we're going to take a hard left and we're going to go this way. We're going to talk about some things today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you and I'm humbled to be here and I'm so humbled by the faithfulness of men and women who would come out to hear me share the truth of the word of God. Pray today, God, let there be a gentle spirit here today that would teach and instruct. Paul had told Timothy, Father, and I echo it again, in the minds of the people apt to teach, a pastor should be. And that's my desire, to give sound instruction. God forbid that I would be one, as Paul said, we have not, we, we have not uh, handled the word of God deceitfully. God, I pray that I will handle the word of God accordingly. God, in the name of Jesus, I pray you'd bless this time together. And everybody said, Amen. Well, now we're going to journey together into the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. And actually, it's the entirety of the chapter, though I'm not going to teach in the great context, but I'm using a little measure of this to create a context and allow us to just kind of walk together. I want you to see something as a pastor. This is something that I've had to work into my own heart and life, something that as I grow and mature in my faith, I feel very confident in helping you find the revelation that Romans 6 contains about overcoming sin. I think that's a powerful thing. Jesus Christ was the atoning sacrifice on the cross of Calvary to alleviate for us our sin indebtedness. We are no longer bound to sin. Thank God. Its power over us were, was broken. Come on. Not only was the penalty of sin paid by Christ and his blood, but the power of sin over your life has been broken. You can be changed into the image of Jesus Christ. What I mean by that is, is that you can be changed into somebody who is being conformed to his image. God is conforming us on a daily basis into the image of Christ. This passage, and we're going to glean it very, very quickly. I'm not going to go into it in great depth. It's setting a certain context that I really need to follow for a short period of time today. Let's look at it just real quickly. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And it's a great question he's asking because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. By reason of being under grace doesn't mean that we, in essence, have that license to sin. Romans 6, are y'all there? Are y'all going to be able to have it on the screen up there? I think it would be good to just kind of let it follow us quickly. Now, we're going to have to go real fast through this. But it's just saying here that, and of course, the answer to that question is certainly no. God forbid, he said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, let me share with you this context. Know ye not that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in... Come on, I may believe it's a new life in Christ Jesus. When you come to him, it's a new life. We're going to follow Jesus and be who God has called us to be. So but let's go down. Let's follow because I'm going to give you the context in just a moment. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that the old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. For if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Stop right there for a moment. The context that Paul is making through this metaphor is that the Christian being born again experience is comparable to water baptism and water baptism is a reflection of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all to see. He was buried in the uh, borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea 
and on the third day he arose to the glory of God. When we come to Christ and through uh, the example of water baptism, we die with Jesus. That's why when we take people under the water, we're saying we're burying the old man, and just as Jesus was raised again, so this person is being raised up to walk in newness of life. Now, when that happened, when Jesus was resurrected, there was a change in his body. In the, he had the ability to die in that first mortal body as the Son of Man. He gave up the ghost. He bled on the cross. He had human emotions. They penetrated his brow with a, you know, a crown of thorns. They pierced his hands and his feet with nails. They took a, a uh, spear and penetrated his side. He, he had the ability to die. And outflowed blood and water. In this life, life is in the blood. But in the world to come, life is in the spirit. When he was resurrected, notice this, when in Luke 24, he said, Handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bone as you see that I have. Notice that he omitted blood. His body today, resurrected form, does not have blood. Blood is the life stream of this life. But in the world to come, the spirit is the life stream. Come on, somebody. And so it's a principle teaching us that when we die, with Jesus in order to walk in newness of life we have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit we turn to the Holy Spirit we look to the Holy Spirit we gain our strength and our ability to do what God has called us to do by the power of the Holy Spirit and the context is simple let's go a little bit further in the 10th verse, in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon you yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. So Paul is exhorting you and I that we are by the Spirit of God who dwells in us to not let sin have dominion over us. Don't let it reign over us. You have the ability to defeat it through Christ. 13th verse, don't yield your members as instruments of instruments unto righteousness, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. We're going to stop on the 14th verse for the sake of time. The context continues in the 15th through the 23rd verse. But I love this, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. And so here, under grace, the difference between this dispensation and the previous dispensation, they were under the law and they could not keep the law. They could not keep the law because they were not born of the Spirit. You and I are born of the Spirit. We are under grace. And now sin has no longer dominion over us. Now in Christ, I don't care what vices that you used to be controlled by. It does not matter. I could unscroll to you a list of vices as long as from here to the back wall of the church and if you would find those vices active in your life prior to coming to Christ you could check it off as saying because of the power of the blood of Jesus and the indwelling spirit that I no longer am subjected to that vice it does not have to dominate me it does not matter whether it was a third or a fourth generational curse if when someone says well my granddaddy was an alcoholic uh, my daddy was an alcoholic and, and these tendencies well those tendencies can be broken by the the power of the blood of Jesus and the anointing of God. And you can live a new and a whole life. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Come on, it does not matter. Now listen, we're very good at picking out certain sins and saying, well, we can be delivered from this, but we can't be delivered from that. I don't believe that. You can't tell me that the power of his blood was not sufficient 
to deliver me from all sins of the flesh. Come on now. And I believe that with all of my heart. And I believe that if you study the scriptures adequately and, and, and with a disciplined heart and mind, you will discover that too. Come on. Now, my responsibility as a pastor is to teach you how to reckon yourself dead to sin. Reckon, I love that word, don't you? There, I love that, reckon. I reckon myself to be dead to sin. When that thing is gnawing away at me, trying to dominate who I am, I reckon myself to be dead to that thing, but alive unto God. The instruments that I used to give over to sinful behavior, now I yield those instruments unto God. I understand the course that he has for my life, and I yield. And my job as a pastor is to teach you, to teach you to function in this. Let me give you an example, okay? I'm going to share something with you very carefully that it's not actually a particular sin that is listed in the Word of God as per se a sin, but I believe in my heart it is a sin. Let us consider spousal abuse. Got real quiet in here. Physical, verbal, and emotional. I believe the home ought to be a place of harmony and peace, loving one another. Come on, somebody. And I believe that though the Bible doesn't plainly say spousal abuse is sin, we can infer by its very nature that it is. Just through rightly dividing the Word of God. If a man is, to, is commanded in the Word of God to love his wife as Christ, love the church and gave himself for her, or for it, and then we follow the pattern, then how can we as men, professing Christian men, believe that we're walking in the will of God for our lives if we are physically, verbally, and emotionally abusing our spouses? Come on, men, I'm talking to you for a moment. Now, I'm not speaking as by revelation that there are those under the sound of my voice that are doing so, but if there were and if there are, and again, maybe it is by the Holy Spirit. Maybe God has brought you here today so that I, using an example to take somewhere on a journey that I'm about to take you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, then I reprove you in Jesus' name. Come on, if you're physically abusing your wife, I reprove you, reprove you, which is reprimand you in the Greek. I reprove you, and then I exhort you to repent, to turn to Christ fully with all your heart. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to ask God and your spouse and your family for forgiveness, those that you've heard. Are you all hearing what I'm saying today? And then turn to the Holy Spirit to empower you and the instruments that you used to use for abuse, you now use to serve God and your family. Come on now. Come on, is that the truth today, right? I'm just sharing that as an analogy. That you would learn, again, not to harm her any longer, to die to sin and to live unto God. Sister Sherry did not pay me to preach this today, so you'll know that. All in agreement I have in my notes would say amen. It's pretty obvious to us. So i got a question now. Was that reproof coming from a pastor who loves his church biblical? In the overall context, now there's actually not a passage. There's no verse of Scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament that says, Thou shalt not hit thy wife. Some of the ladies saying, well, it should have been. <laughs> there may be something like, Thou shalt not nag, but I don't know. I've been looking for it there. I'm just teasing. No, I'm just teasing. Hello trying to break the ice in here a little bit. 
So, but even in, the, even in the absence of a direct scripture, the context is clear. I can have a clear, but, but I can still handle, I can still reprove. I can still reprove and love and teach, right? So let me take a moment. Now I'm going to shift you. Now you're saying, well, we're going right here. Detour. <laughs> All right. In the context of a pastor's responsibility and virtue of Romans 6, it's my responsibility, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy confirms this, and Romans 6 is the power source to teach people to overcome. Let me tell you what I want to talk to you about today in the next couple of weeks possibly, and that is we have to talk about what has become the most controversial, divisive issue in the body of Christ in our generation, and that's homosexuality. It's become the most divisive issue in the body of Christ and in the nation. And it's in my personal opinion, it's my personal opinion, if I were to remain silent in this area, I would be doing a disservice to the people of God. Okay, but let me take a moment of time. This is a multifaceted, Letha, is it faceted or faucetted? Faceted. I practiced before I got here today. A multifaceted subject. Now stay with me. Now listen, my heart is prepared before God. My mind is prepared. My spirit is prepared to handle a very difficult subject in the right manner, okay? Let me go ahead and say this. This, side, this is multifaceted. Cannot cover all of it in one sermon. Can't. I'm only going with one angle of it today, okay? But let me share with you the things that I know that when the word is spoken, that it resonates different thoughts come in our mind. Let's first consider this real quickly. There is the legal issue and the homosexual community's quest for acceptance and marital recognition. That's one side. Everybody's dealing with it. Unless you live, you know, uh, in the hills and hide under a rock, then you, you're aware of that issue that's, being, that's going on. Then there's the ecclesiastical issue, and that is if the government affirms homosexuality as a right, which it has, but also gay marriage as a right or privilege, uh, should the church affirm it? That's a question that at some level will have to be responded to, okay? That's not where I'm going today. Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That news has been going out and abroad throughout our nation, right, recently from both Arkansas and Indiana and more to come. Should business owners have to participate in a gay marriage service or whatever through selling their goods and services? That's one component. This is the most delicate right here, personal connections. There are people under the sound of my voice that, and there might even be somebody here today, but I know there are people under the sound of my voice that you are. You have a loved one, a child, a grandchild, uh, somebody you care about, a co-worker. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Who's caught, and I don't apologize for the statement, in the vice of homosexuality, and you love that person deeply, and you struggle to know how to respond. It's a real side of it that we have to look at. Come on. Right? Hey, listen, Jesus turned to those that were going to stone the woman caught in adultery, and he said, he that is without sin cast the first stone. No man, you know, by the conviction of their own conscience was able to throw the stone. There's no stones in my hand here today. But it doesn't mean I don't talk about the subject, okay? That's something we have to be able to distinguish between the two. Is it wrong? Is it wrong for the church to resist the influence of the homosexual community's agenda? Um, I have printed out my font in large enough font that I don't have to put those glasses on, but I keep turning by um, out of habit. Uh, many, many other angles, and I won't even be able to cover all of them in the next couple of weeks, but it is many-faceted or multifaceted. 
I'm going to share with you in a moment what part I am going to cover. Now, some in the church, let me say this. This is from my pastor's heart to yours very quickly. You have such strong personal feelings towards this subject because you have a friend or a co-worker or a relative who is gay or homosexual and you love them sincerely. And whenever the subject is brought up, you don't even take the time to listen. And that's wrong, I believe, on your part. Maybe not when you're in a moment where there's heated argument and people are, are malicious. I can understand maybe you kind of tapping out and not, being, not participating in that type of conversation. But, but, in, but that's not what's going to be created in here today. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle to all men. Patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. That's what you're going to hear in here today. But some have a predetermined mindset that the only response is love, acceptance, and affirmation. And you connect Christ-like to that response, love, acceptance, and affirmation, and you don't connect Christ-like to any type of reproof. And I believe you're an heir for doing so because there ain't no daddy in this room loves his babies more than I do. And I'll tell you what, I never had a problem reproving them in love. And I, I just want you to know that that's something, some stigmas in the mind of some Christians, and we've got to get through it, or we can't help people get out if we don't courageously face some of the issues that are within us. So today, again, just because someone wants to discuss this in any other context other than love and acceptance does not mean it is filled with hate and homophobia. It's not. We need to examine, listen to this, this subject, biblically, not emotionally nor politically. Come on, biblically. We must listen to the scriptures and interpret and respond accordingly. The issue has divided the body of Christ. It is dividing the nation. And we even have some schisms in our local body. And as a pastor, to remain silent would be irresponsible on my part. Okay, I believe that with all my heart. I do. I believe it would be irresponsible. So now let me say today, what's my responsibility? It is to teach the truth and to protect the unity of our fellowship. The assemblies of God, what you see here today is a great united fellowship of 12,000 or a multitude of thousands of ministers and churches across the United States. Three million adherents worldwide are in the, in the United States, making it the 10th largest denomination, but almost 90 million adherents worldwide, making it the largest arm of Pentecostalism in the world. And our fellowship has, is, has, is dealing with this subject just like others. And in 2014 at the General Council, they put out a position paper concerning homosexuality, uh, marriage, and sexual identity. That's what you see here in front of you today. My, my question to you, or my, my, my uh, request is not, do not let a single man or woman leave here today without one of these, okay? Read this in your own time. This is very well written, okay? I'm only going to just give you a couple of the highlights real quickly today, but I want you, this is the official position paper of the Assemblies of God responding. Number, just real quickly, homosexual behavior is a sin. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Homosexual behavior is sin because it's disobedient to scriptural teachings. Homosexual behavior is sin because it's contrary to God's created order for the family and human relationships. Homosexual behavior is sin that comes under divine judgment. But homosexual behavior is sin for which reconciliation is possible. Okay? That is possible. There's a great 
article on the Assemblies of God official website that shares the testimony. I have it here. If time affords me, I'll read a portion of it in conclusion today of a, uh, a former school teacher who has uh, broken free and, uh, and her testimony is available for all to see. And I think that's a, a powerful thing. Now, there's also some resultant affirmations that are made with regard to same-sex marriage, regard to sexual immorality, regard to sexual identity, regard to sexual orientation, and a word of caution to the church instructing, just as I have already stated, to handle people carefully. Right? So, please, again, it's right here. I will have the ushers right at the conclusion make sure they're standing at the back with these copies and some at the altar for you to take. Please promise me that every man and woman that will take a copy of this and read that in your own time. Okay? And everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, let's go down. So the only thing time will allow for today is the biggest question of all. And you say, well, Pastor, why is that such a big question? It is a big question because the church, the church nationwide has uh, different viewpoints on this to answer this question right here. And that is, is homosexuality a sin? Do not speak out in response to that. I just wanted you to know that's the question. Is homosexuality a sin according, or not just a sin, but sin according to the scriptures? That's where we have to start at. Because if we're going to move forward and respond to the things that are going on in our culture, we have to have a basis for it. We have to have something that drives us. Something gives us a foundation upon which to respond. Is it your own personal convictions? Is it the ideology that was shaped in you because of your school system or your upbringing or, or, or whatever? that might be. Is it the political world that's shaping your identity or shaping your thought process? Or can you go to the Word of God? I would dare say that the majority of Christians in here today could not take people in the Word of God and address the issue biblically. Okay, so it's my responsibility to teach you, and I'm going to do so very briefly today. Amen? Oh, I feel the love and the joy up here today. So I could already tell as service started that we're going to have a little bit of a difficult time, but that's okay. We'll press through this. Amen? As they say, this is not my first rodeo. Okay, so there's some direction here, and I know that God wants to bless this direction because we should not be bothered by studying the Scriptures and looking to the Word of God. So now, as I take you on a brief journey and highlight a couple of things very quickly today, I want to remind you, remember what I preached last week about the danger of twisting the Scriptures, misconstruing the Scriptures, misinterpreting the Scriptures. It's a very real challenge in our culture to be able to contend for the right application of the Word of God. Sometimes... People stand on platforms like mine and they say one thing about the scriptures and then somebody else says something else. What's the answer? What's the truth? We're going to do our best to at least what I believe is the truth. We're going to start with the most obvious and the most familiar to many people and that is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, many of you are familiar with it, but we're going to post the scriptures on the screen just very quickly. We don't have time to cover that in its entirety, but you need to see that's the first appearance of the context of homosexuality in the, script, in the scriptures. Do we have that, Phil? Genesis, yes. We're going to be in Genesis 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grievous. Just through the context. Now we move to the, 20, the 19th chapter, the 3rd and 4th verse. And so he pressed upon them greatly and they turned in unto him and entered into his house and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread and they did eat. Let's go down. And before they lay down, 
The men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round about, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And I didn't put the fifth and sixth verse, and I was at fault for doing so. But that's where the angel has visited these two ancient cities, and they've gone to the house of Lot, who is the nephew of Abraham. He's brought them into his house. Angels have visited the men of the city, saw these two angels, these two, these two men. They just determined them to be messengers or men, and they came out at night so that they might know them in a violent way, in a sexually deviant way, okay? That's the context. Now, let me just share with you, if you were here Wednesday night, now, ultimately, that city was destroyed. That city and other cities, the cities of this plain, were destroyed in a violent act of God's judgment. And I'm not here to talk about that today. I'm just showing you that that's where it began, okay? The term sodomite, how many is familiar with sodomite? The term sodomite or sodomy comes from Sodom and Gomorrah. It's, that's its historical context. Now, I noted on Wednesday night, if you'd have been here on Wednesday night, that there is um, a segment of what's called progressive Christianity that rejects the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a result of their grievous sin of homosexuality because of what's written in the book of Ezekiel, the 16th chapter and the 49th and the 50th verse. In those two verses, the prophet Ezekiel is looking back to that time and said, as he's making a comparison to the people of his day, he said, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. I don't bring the verse up. I'm just quoting it for you or paraphrasing it. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. And that was she was not benevolent. She was not benevolent to uh, her people, and so therefore that was her destruction. And so there's a component within the homosexual community that is attempting to interpret the scriptures and not make any type of connection to divine judgment. But the problem with that type of interpretation, it omits a very critical other verse of scripture, the seventh verse of Jude that we're going to bring up now. Jude is a half-brother of Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, and he writes a one-chapter epistle that deals with certain things. The seventh verse, if we can, Phil, if we've got that one. It may have looked like the, seven, the, the first verse. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So here's the example that the apostles then are confirming the historical interpretation of why the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah happened. So I'm just, I'm building real quickly a basis of knowledge. I'm not making any application towards that. I'm just wanting you to know that's where it starts. Amen? Now, the term sodomite is found in other places of Scripture in the Old Testament and always in a negative sense, but we're not going to bring those up today. So let's go from the biblical example in Genesis to Leviticus. Now, this is the law. I understand that. I'll expound upon that more in a moment, and then I'll show you a comparison to the way that some people interpret this. Leviticus 18 and 22, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is an abomination. 20th chapter, 13th verse. If a man lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. These are strong words from the people, uh, or from Moses unto the people of ancient Israel. Now, notice this. The law of, homos of Moses strictly forbade the practice of homosexuality for Israel, instructing even the death penalty for those who did. Now, let me say this very careful, carefully for you to understand. We recognize that we are not under the law. We understand that wholeheartedly, and we do not even contempt, uh, uh, contemplate such punishment in our dispensation in our culture. It never even enters our mind, okay, just so that you're aware of. However, we recognize the principle of the law, that we learn from the law. 
We do learn from it. Romans 15 and 4 said the things that were written beforehand, beforehand were written for our learning. So those of us that say, well, it doesn't have any bearing over me, you're wrong in your biblical interpretation. We learn from it. We glean principles that teach us, okay? Now let's go to the Gospels. Have y'all noticed I've got you on a trail? We started in Genesis, then we went to the law. Now let's go to the Gospels real quickly. What did Jesus have to say about it? Well, directly, nothing. Indirectly, a lot. But let's go there real quickly. Some argue that since Jesus did not teach against homosexuality, therefore he affirmed it. If you take the time to do as I have done, study this out and see what people are teaching by going on the internet today, there is a segment of Christianity that is saying because Jesus did not directly teach against it, he therefore affirmed it, okay? So that's a divided thought process that is waging war to be able to be the response of the Christian church. Okay, so we've got to consider that just very briefly. Let me give you my personal rebuttal to that side, that because Jesus did not teach openly against it, he must, uh, we conclude that he is for it. Let me say this, first of all, real quickly. We compare, he did not teach against spousal abuse either. But we can conclude that I believe by context. Okay, so that's just my personal conclusion. But here's what this, this is the biblical interpretation to the Gospels. Jesus said this himself. Y'all listen carefully. He said, Pastor, you're just boring me to death. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. These are issues that have got to be dealt with. We have not seen the end. It's only coming stronger in a, there's going to be some massive conflict that's taking place. I've been trying, just like I did a year ago when I talked about Islam, and I said, we've got to prepare ourselves. We've got some real issues we're going to deal with. And that's not stopped, and it's going to continue. This is a real issue. You can't hide from it. We've got to be able to deal with it. But can we deal with it biblically? Can we respond accurately in the right way and in the right direction and in a unified response? That's the question that must be answered. Here's the thing about Jesus. First of all, Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as a result, the people of Israel were under the law. Homosexuality was not openly practiced in Israel because of those strict, strong commandments out of the law. So therefore, it wasn't something that he was dealing with on an everyday basis. But you may remember, he did tell the woman that was caught in adultery when the law did speak about adultery and homosexuality in the same passage, giving the same corporate punishment. And remember what Jesus said to the woman that was caught in adultery. Remember what he said. He responded to her. Even though they would not stone her because of their own convictions, rightfully so, there was, no, there was sin in their own lives. Jesus had put them in a situation that caused them to first examine themselves. But remember what he did say, go and sin no more. For whatever reason, we are intimidated to tell people caught in the vice of homosexuality to go and sin no more. And in doing so, we're robbing them of the privilege of finding repentance and deliverance through the blood of Jesus Christ. For whatever reason, there's an intimidating spirit that is prohibiting the, prohibiting the church from having a clear conviction to walk in love towards people but to say, go and sin no more. Okay? Let's go a little bit further here. Here's what Jesus did teach. Here's what Jesus did teach. Matthew 19. He answered and said unto them, have you not read? That's a great question. Can I echo that today? Have you not read? Right? Have you all not read what the scripture says? Have you not read? He said in them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them what? Male and female, fifth verse. For this cause, God said, and, for, and said, for this cause shall a 
man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So what he was doing was affirming historical, traditional, biblical, or the created order of marriage. Okay, let's just touch base there. Now let's go to the final stopping place in our journey, and that's the epistles. The epistles are the letters of the apostles to the church who are now dealing with the very issues that I'm talking about. And, and sometimes, let me tell you just real quickly, the apostle Paul writes to churches that were birthed in the midst of very difficult uh, uh, sensual lifestyles, cities that embraced idolatry, pagan sexual practices, all kinds of things. I mean, all kinds of things. And Paul, once a person got saved, Paul said, you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. You die to yourself and you live into God. The old man is buried dead and you get up and you walk in newness of life. That was the Apostle Paul's theme. Come on, it didn't matter what vice you'd been caught in, whether it was idolatry or if it was sexual sin of any nature whatsoever or hatred or, or, or whatever the case or covetousness. Once that you were saved, then we are to walk in newness of life. Oh, I'm preaching better than y'all shout, but that's okay. Let's go a little further. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. We're going to read this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Why is that warning there? Because people will deceive you. People will attempt to deceive you. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. Note the word fornicator. I'm going to allude to it in a moment. Idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate. Note that word. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. See that? Look what he said. Paul says, such were some of you. You were caught in all these vices. But look what he, look what he said. But you're washed. Thank God for the atoning blood of Jesus that washes us away from all sin. Come on. And we're washed by the renewing of the water of the word of God. You're sanctified. Come on, you're declared holy by virtue of his shed blood. And you're justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Oh, the power of the gospel to change a heart. Amen. Oddly enough, nobody here would have any problem if I were to say, if you're a drunkard, you can be washed and made whole. If you're a reviler, you can be washed and be made whole. If you're a thief, you can wash and be made whole. If you're an extortionist, you can wash and be made whole. If you are an adulterer, you can wash and be made whole. But the moment I say you're a homosexual, you can wash and be made whole. We've been intimidated and being deceived in our culture. And we've got to guard our hearts. Let the truth, let the truth set men free. Come on, let the truth of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ set men free. Three words we must note very quickly today. Fornicator, the word fornicator in the Greek is paramour. And it means to sell a male prostitute. To sell a male prostitute. It is also translated whoremonger. And so it also appears in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 through 11 as fornicator, but also in Ephesians 5 and 5 as whoremonger. So often if you're a King James Version read, a Bible reader as I am, and you see these words, you might not have the full connotation of its application. Certainly fornication means sexual sin, but it can also in the Greek have a connection to homosexuality as well by the context. So when you reread Hebrews 13, and four, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The context is homosexuality as well, okay? Let's go a little further. Effeminate. 
That Greek word is katamite. It means soft, fine clothing, and it is defined as having characteristics more often associated with women than men. The last phrase is abusers of themselves with mankind. It is one word in the Greek, though it is five words in the English. It is sodomites, and it is defiling oneself with mankind, defined as a man who lies with another man. Now, this would go on. Let me give you very quickly. All I'm doing is giving you the verses. You have to make up your own judgment. My job's to teach the truth of the Word of God, okay? I'm only attempting to answer one question today. Is homosexuality a sin according to the Scriptures? I'm going to close in just a moment. Stay with me. I've got just a few more minutes left. But let me say this. I'm going to show you the danger of our society very carefully in the misinterpretation of Scripture. When I do, you're going to say, okay, now, Pastor, I understand the reason you're taking this angle. 1 Timothy 1 Verses 9 through 10, King James English says, For whoremongers and them that defile themselves with mankind. If you have an NIV or a New American Standard, it would probably simply say homosexuality. I've already referenced Jude 7, and so we will not go there. The last place of reference that we will go today is Romans 1, and that's all we're going to go to. And there it's, it's actually verses 18 through, 20, or through 32. And matter of fact, I think I'm going to have to just read it all. I'd be wrong not to. Let's read it together. It's on the screen in front of me. It's from the screen in front of you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. Y'all missed that. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. The initial context is idolatry. There are those that, let's take, let's take for a minute agnostics who, or atheists who don't believe in God. Let me tell you, the creation declares there's a God. The creation, when the sun rises in the morning, it's declaring there's a God. Come on, somebody. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. They are understood by the things that are made. The creation declares the eternal power of God. So men are without excuse. When men stand up before God and say, God, I didn't know, it's not going to be an excuse. Are you hearing me? Because God's declared himself as God through his creation. The 22nd verse, let's read that. It's going down a little bit, Phil, if we can. They professed themselves to be wise, but they became fools. 23rd verse. They changed the glory. This is, this is idolatry. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto... See, man just wants to make his own God. And let me tell you, just because we don't have a statue today and people aren't worshiping a statue in America, people are still worshiping idolatrous deities that are labeled as God, okay? It might be a theology, an ideology. It matters not, but they're taking this and they are corrupting it, okay? So the, the glory of the incorruptible God is being changed. So let's go on down, 24th verse. This is a very important one. Wherefore God gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. They changed the truth of God into a lie. Be careful now. I'm telling you, God's truth is universal. Doesn't matter. God, if it's truth, it's truth. If it's truth, it's truth. You just got to ask yourself, what is the truth? I told you months ago, I said, somebody's got the truth. You've got to be very careful who's influencing you, okay? Somebody's got it. They changed the truth of God into a lie, and they worship and they serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen, Paul says. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Notice that word. I, I won't go into it right now, but for, uh, for their own women did change, or vile affections, not two words. For uh, even the women did change the natural use into what? Which is against nature. 27th verse, likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lusts one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet. 28th verse. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. It's a very, I'm telling you, I'm not getting into the depth of it today, but it, a mind can be so corrupted. Are y'all hearing me today? And once they are been given over to it and then they cannot satisfy, they cannot satisfy lust. It's, it's, not, it's, it's insatisfiable. Being filled with unrighteousness, fornication. So here's a whole list of sins, a whole list. Unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, on and on, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful. Don't you thank God I can talk so fast so I can go real quickly. Despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. 31st verse, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. 32nd verse, who knowing the judgment of God, they that which do such things are worthy of death, but not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And I understand the second chapter is dealing with judging and everything, and you have to be very careful to make the right application, but you can speak the truth without judging, right. right? And that's something we have to understand. We can speak and teach the truth. See, when I look at the Word of God, I look at the Word of God first for its own personal application to me. You know, what part of my life do I need to deal with? Do I, am I talking about people? Am I thinking evil thoughts? And when I do, you know what I got to do? I go to the cross and I say, I died with Jesus and I'm going to bury that and I'm going to walk in newness of life. And that's our responsibility is to teach men and women that they can overcome. The word unseemly in that passage means an indecency or a shame and it references the human genital organs. I want to say this today. I believe that if you don't, if you don't misinterpret the scriptures, if you just simply take the scriptures, scriptures from Genesis all the way into the New Testament that you'll be able to make a comparable conclusion. Now let me say this and I'm getting ready to close. Daryl, if you'll join me on the platform and tell you just like you were a moment ago when we closed the uh, worship service, so gentle like that, I would greatly appreciate it. Uh, many distort the scriptures to their own destruction. Right? They do. That's the, well, I didn't write that. Daryl, I didn't write that. Peter, the apostle, wrote that and said many distort the scriptures. Okay, you've got to be very careful to rightly divide the word of truth. Let me show you something. Now, let me give you, I'm gonna, I, I want to show you an article. I'm not going to put it up there. I forgot to tell them to put it up there. But listen to this. I want you to Google search these words right here. So if you're writing this down, I want you, because I want you to read this article. It's 22 pages. I'm only going to send this home with you about eight pages. But this other article is 22 pages, and it is, Is Homosexuality a Sin for New Testament Believers? It's a great article, very in-depth. And I think it will be very beneficial. So if you Google search, type in those words. Is homosexuality a sin for New Testament believers? And you can come up and look at the article that I have printed out to make sure that that's the right one because I don't think it left, I don't think I copied the author's, uh, the author's name. But it's simply, it's, it's consistent with the Word of God. Now in that article, here is an excerpt of showing what we're dealing with today and men and women speaking for the truth, but maybe holding the truth in unrighteousness, okay? Listen very carefully. This is an article that was taken off of gaychurch.org, okay? So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a homosexual website called gaychurch.org, and it is a reference to the passage in Leviticus. Remember the law? That we walk, remember that I talked about? Now listen very carefully. I want you to hear this. It's very important. So this is what Professor Sword, so he is a professor of some kind, he said, Old Testament experts view the regulations of Leviticus as standards of holiness, directives for the formation of community life, aimed at establishing and maintaining a people's identity in relation to God. 
This is because God was so determined that his people who were being formed into a new nation would not adopt the practices of the Baal worshippers in Canaan and same gender sex was part of Baal worship. So listen what he said. He's saying this, the law came to help them to live a right life and be, live differently from the inhabitants of the promised land which was the Canaanites, and the Canaanites practiced what he defines as same gender sex, and so God forbade it, okay? There's a measure of application to that. I don't really have a problem with that. Okay, so then he goes further. If we consider that morality was a factor in this rule, if it is part of the code, what he calls the law, he's calling it the code, okay? So understand this real quickly. And it says, and when the code became obsolete as it is under Christ, that rule as part of the code became obsolete. There's a little measure of truth in that as well because there were other parts of the law that you're not practicing today. You're not wearing, you know, you were forbade to wear two pieces of clothing that were, was different, cotton and polyester, and you might be against the law, okay? But the principle, but I understand what he's saying. I, 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 he's still not that far off. But these verses in Leviticus have nothing to say to us today, and I don't believe that, other than beyond the eternal principle of the need for purity in the worship of God. If the immorality, listen to this, here it is, it's the last few words. If the immorality expressed in them happens to be a principle for all time, then it will be found elsewhere in the Bible. He's saying if, it was, it was, if it's a principle for all time, it would be in the New Testament as well as the Old. Well, I think it is in the New Testament, but he doesn't. Let me show you the reason why. He talks about Romans 1. He says this, For heterosexuals, it is found in Romans 1, which clearly condemns same gender sex by heterosexuals. But there is nothing in the Bible to support any finding about homosexuals. Okay, so think about, remember talk about twisting. Let me come down before I conclude. You've got to think about what the way it was reading. He said, Romans 1, it's kind of, Joe, I used you as an example one time. I won't have to use him again. I won't, I won't co-mingle it like I did before. <laughs> Too bad. If Joe is a heterosexual and he lusts for another male because he's heterosexual, that would be sin to him. But if Shane is a homosexual... He can lust for other men because that's his nature to do so. And he's not reproved by Scripture. That's what's being taught in our nation today. Okay? That's taking the Word of God, the truth of God, in unrighteousness. Okay? That's misinterpreting and misimplying the author's intent. Okay? We're dealing with it. These students are going to deal with it especially, right? I'm telling you, I've been reading a book called The Agenda. I'll get into it a little bit more. But there's a, there's a, there's a, we understand there's a, there, uh, there is a non-militant side of the homosexual uh, 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 movement or community. We understand that. But there is a militant side to it as well. Let me just tell you, there is. And they've targeted our public school system. Okay? I'm not getting in there today. But if we don't know what the scriptures say, how are we going to know what to do? Amen. How are we going to know how to live? And unfortunately, there is such a spirit of intimidation anytime a pastor just in love wants to come up in front of a church family and say, I just want to teach you, then there are those that are like, well, you are just like everybody else. No, I'm not. 
No, I'm not. There's no malice in my heart. There's no hatred. I don't have a box of stones to throw up here at anybody today, but I want to hold the truth in unrighteousness, or in righteousness, not in unrighteousness. I want to hold the truth, and I want to rightly divide it because our job is to preach the truth so people can be recovered from the snare of the fowler. Recover from the snare of the devil who have been taken captive by him. That they can be made free and they can experience freedom in Christ. Come on, somebody. That's our job. And if we are afraid to confront the issue, intimidated by certain things, then we're being robbed of the call of God upon our lives. Here's my conclusions. I know that somebody's watch has already beeped and I'm going on in overtime. If you're true to the text, the context to the harmony of scriptures. And if you refuse to twist, misconstrue, and misinterpret, then we should easily conclude that homosexuality, even in the pretense of marriage, is a sin. Okay? It misses the mark of God's design for procreation. It is against nature. It is destructive to the human body and to the soul. It is eerily associated with idolatry. Okay, I'll share more later about that. And, and so those who openly practice and continually gratify their desires through the practice of are listed with those who shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why it's a grave issue that we have to deal with and be willing to confront in love. We cannot allow certain outside forces to intimidate us from preaching the truth in love. The, pre- the truth preached in love will deliver men. Come on, somebody. It will. And when you have fallen prey to the thought process that if you reprove anything at all, you're not walking in love, you're the one in error. Okay? Just want you to know that today. So I recognize this. Here's what I recognize. I'm on my last point. I recognize that the idolatrous sinners of our culture don't recognize the scriptures as their source of conviction. I know that. You know it. I know it. But our responsibility is to lead them to repentance. That's, that's what we've been commissioned to do. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he sent them out in the midst of the Roman Empire. And he said, and go and preach the gospel to every creature. Come on. And that's our responsibility. The great hope and the promise of the gospel is this. All who have sinned, all who have sinned, and we've all sinned. Come on, we can find grace and forgiveness through repentance and through the mercy God gives us through Jesus Christ. And that includes homosexuals. They can be washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. And you say, well, Pastor, what are we going to do once they're converted and they find themselves under those temptations, same-sex temptations? Being tempted is not sin. It's gratifying the temptation that's sin. You know what I would do? I would teach them the same principle I would teach anybody. You died with Jesus. The old man is dead. The sin will not have power over you. Greater is he that is in you. Come on, somebody. Mortify the flesh and live holy before God. Every day, get up. Do it. Every day that the temptation comes. I would say that to an alcoholic. Every time that the temptation comes to you, cast it down in Jesus' name. Declare your, or your deliverance through the power of his blood and overcome. Doesn't matter. That truth is universal. It doesn't matter. Some people say, well, a sin is sin. Yes, okay, if sin is sin, then the truth applies to all. If he delivered us from one, he can deliver us from all. 
Everybody can find forgiveness. Come on, amen. And how many of you didn't find today's message offensive? It's simply the truth. Now, next week, I will attempt to look at the more controversial and contentious side of this difficult issue. And I may not even come to conclusions. Some things, it's just people's opinion. And I'm not going to be an expert in my opinion or other people's opinion. But I want you to be rooted in the Word. The Word. That's where it starts. That's what should be our motivating force. Many twist and distort the truth unto their own destruction. We will never make a true difference if we don't believe the Scriptures. I say this again, you are not homophobic when you simply speak the truth in love. You are motivated by love and you are keenly aware of the power of God to change and to deliver. And we as the church must be unified on this subject scripturally. Okay? Study the word. Amen. We're going to close with a special prayer right here today. I'm not going to read to you the, for the sake of time that... that uh, testimony but if you go to the assemblies of god website you'll find it there under news click on news and then it'll be the last testimony that's listed here's what i think we should do two things we're going to pray collectively that our culture that our culture will not continue to be duped or intimidated by the militant side remember i know there's a peaceful side but there is a militant side and it's intimidated the church we're like the people of the house of Lot were backed up into our little houses of worship afraid to say anything lest we offend anybody. We, can, we got to look the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's what we've been uh, taught to do by the word of God. But here's what I want to do. Let's make this very personal. Let's pray today. Let's, let's be prepared to say this. I think we should pray first for people that we know and love who are caught in this vice. I think that's how we should close. I think that, it, can I ask you to just really be honest and why don't you stand up and let's close. Let's close today. And I want to ask you to, to be real. It's going to take some boldness today. But I want, if you could say, Pastor, I have a friend. I have a co-worker. I have a loved one that I believe is caught in the vice of homosexuality. And I just want to pray for them today. I just want to pray for them. I want to ask you to be courageous enough. If you just want to stand in for somebody, just come in and stand in. Just come down to the front. We're going to pray collectively together, and we're just going to pray. We're just going to pray for God's great grace to be made known. We want to, you know, the power of prayer, the power of prayer can release the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We're not judging. We're not throwing stones. We're just rightly dividing the Word of God we know that they are caught in a vice that is destructive to the body, destructive to the emotions, destructive to the, destructive to the soul. And we're going to fight against it, and that's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And I know some of you have confided in me personally, and you've shared with me, you have a loved one, friend, family worker, or family worker, or a co-worker, or a family member that, that you're really just you're praying for, and you're just asking for God. Now, some of you take offense at this context of thought. But you wouldn't have any problem about if I'd have said, if you've got a co-worker, a family member, a friend who's caught in the vice of addiction, drug addiction, let's come down and pray for them. You'd be like, all right, let's go right here. Okay? Listen, the power of the blood of Jesus, the power of the blood of Jesus can free anybody. We have to believe. Now, listen, I want to, I want to ask you real quickly. I need some ushers before we pray. Uh, Matt, come back here, if you would. One or Dylan right there. And y'all take some at the door. Uh, and because I don't want anybody to leave. If you will, please take it. This is the, and some people have already left. 
right there. Y'all can just pass some of those out, and I'll leave some here. There's 200 copies of that. Give him a stat too as well. There's Matt right there, Dylan. Uh, make sure you take one, please. Please take one.